Hello everyone, it's April 27th, 2021, so thanks to Northrop Grumman's MEV2, another Intel set will live on, which is very cool. Also, ULA has scrapped ACES, but in a way, it too will live on thanks to Centaur 5. Sometimes it's all about using what you've got, so let's do the show. And lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 306 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. It seems like a lot's happened this week in spaceflight. I don't know where to start, but we got some segments. And uh, for top of the show banter, I haven't actually, I didn't prep anything, so. Uh, I've got some gigantic uh, tomato plants that are itching to go into the garden. I've never had a tomato plant. I've smelled them. They smell great. I know. They smell like basil, don't they? I guess, yeah, basil. Well, whatever it is, it's like, it's the best smelling vegetable Mm -hmm. there is. Yeah. I just kind of wish that they tasted like that like you could eat that smell but you can't really you yeah. can't eat the smell that is a tomato yeah plant. i think tomato leaves are, are not good to eat i mean they're, they're nightshade so i wouldn't yeah, want to experiment yeah. with it yeah i don't know what my fascination is with the nightshade family but you get tomatoes peanuts eggplants you get all these random vegetables that don't seem related in any way but they all kind of are you know what i mean um mm-hmm. they're so different but uh i guess parts of them will kill you if you're not careful Br- brassicas are also fun because they try really hard to kill you and just make themselves more tasty so that's you know broccoli mustard brussels sprouts and a, and a bunch of others and and the good spicy flavors and the the bitter flavors and kind of some of the stinky like the the brussels sprout farty kind of mm-hmm. smell mm-hmm. that's all from the the compounds that they make to try and make themselves poisonous and they totally failed they <laughs> humans really like them i mean same thing same thing with peppers peppers are spicy so that only birds will eat them and humans are like oh hmm. no <laughs> we're gonna eat as many <laughs> as we can find but you know we return the favor by propagating them and and cultivating them and taking care of them so that i don't think they mind too much so be careful what you eat First up in the news, uh, renewable space update. So we have an update on reducing, reusing, and recycling in space, I guess, specifically (laughs) satellites. The MEV-1 and 2. 2 is the one that was just launched and uh, has actually successfully attached itself to a satellite and uh, is now extending its mission lifetime uh, in geosynchronous orbit. I think it's in... What is it? Not in Iridium. It's a... Uh, it's an Intel set. In fact, I'm about Intel to, set. So when we talked about, I think, the launch or that maybe a month or so ago when it was beginning, like the proximity operations, how this is... Uh, you know, I love going to that setbeams.com and how this is a uh, Intel set that's sitting basically right above, you know, zero longitude, zero latitude, pretty much. It's basically given coverage to kind of, you know, Africa, uh, Europe... Uh, a little bit of um, South America, yeah. And, and if you don't remember us talking about that, that's when we learned that they changed this, uh, the beams from the geostationary satellites based on physically changing the, the surface, uh, molding the surface of the antennas to be able to get the beam shapes that'll optimize covering, you know, whatever part of the, like, whatever cities and countries they want to uh, so that was pretty cool. I remember talking about that. <laughs> yeah, because that was really confusing because they looked so oddly shaped, but they seemed to coincide with, you know, the shape of a continent. And I was like, well, how's that possible? But, And I guess that's because you don't want overlapping of these various beams. Is that what it is? Well, yeah, maybe, yeah, you know what I mean? maybe you want one transponder to be the one that's going to really do the, the service in South America, say, and then another transponder that's optimized for Europe and another one that's optimized for this part of Africa and so on, you know, Mm -hmm. it's my guess. (laughs) At least that's how I do it. So, yeah, we've had a successful docking and I guess last week we didn't talk about it because, yeah, it was last week's show. 
Yeah, it was on, it was on the twelfth was when the docking happened. So we just we had so many things in last week's show, and I I wanted to talk about it because it's so cool. So you know, th- not much has been released uh, about the docking, but we do have a photo um, of IS ten o two, which is the target satellite. Yeah, let's go with target. And um, IS ten o two was nearing the end of its life, and so uh, they've bought five years from. Uh, from MEV2. So it'll stay there for five years and then it'll go do something else. And and I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if they go to a new customer or if they go to a new uh, Intel sat uh, vehicle. To me, it's just very impressive that it can do that because that means it, it just has that much more fuel, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if it can go to another customer and service that for, say, another five years, well, that's that's just impressive. But I guess if your satellite is just full of fuel, <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're just chock full of hypergulls, then you can do that. Yeah. I mean, if that's what, you know, you don't, you're not like carrying any other payload, really. And yeah, that photo looks really cool. You can see the Earth mm-hmm. in the background. At first, I didn't know what that was because it was so obscure. I was like, what? You know, I thought that was, I don't know what it was. But yeah, then I looked at it. I was like, oh, that's the Earth in the background. Yeah. So David, you're talking about the photo that MEV2 took as it was coming in for docking. Um, right. And that'll yeah. be in the show notes. And And what's interesting is, as far as we can tell, it actually took a couple of different tries to do this. They had a couple of different approaches and I don't know if they aborted or if they were just, you know, uh, they wanted to do, try a couple of different things in a couple of different, you know, uh, dress rehearsal attempts, but you know, they're, they're not really releasing any information on the progress or, or how this went out, but you know, they, they did dock. So even if they had to take a couple tries, you know, they got there eventually. I'm guessing that they just wanted to be very cautious because you don't want to collide with it. And I know that they okay. approached to what, like 60 meters or so, and then they held that position. And then who knows what they did. And and then they pushed into like 20 meters away and then held that position. And then, you know, some hours later, they actually came in for the final approach. So I'm guessing that they were just being very cautious because this is a huge, ex- you know, like you don't want to, it's pretty bad if you have a customer and you mm-hmm. not only don't help them, but you knock the right. satellite out of orbit or whatever, right, or right, like right. damage it in some way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's even worse. Yeah, this yeah, MEV one, right? That was that was a graveyard satellite mm-hmm. that was brought resurrected. This is one that has been operational, and it's just yeah. <laughs> so, call in the chat has a really interesting question. Um, they point out that the brightness of the continents versus the ocean versus the clouds is not what we would expect. So, um, the continents are quite bright. The water is is a middle gray, and the clouds are actually black. Um, what? What wavelength would result in that kind of an image? That's not IR, is it? I think it is. I thought that that's what they said. I thought clouds would be reflective to IR. Low altitude clouds tend to reflect IR. High altitude clouds absorb it. Oh. I know that much from climate stuff. So cirrus cloud, because when it comes to them as a, a sorcerer, like do clouds cool or heat the earth? It depends on which cloud you're talking about. And that's why mm-hmm. it's tough to model. And they had no idea, frankly. So in that photo, so, Dennis, do those look like cirrus clouds to you? Cause probably, right. I mean, I don't know. When I think of like huge cloud systems, I yeah. feel like they include, well, even, so how about this? If, even if there was a mix of low altitude and high altitude clouds, you know, we would see the high altitude ones from this perspective, right? Cause we're huh. above it all. Okay. So that that's MEV2. Um, I also kind of wanted to lump in another, uh, little press release. Um, there's a German rideshare company called ExoLaunch. I believe we've talked about them on the show before. Um, and they are now developing their own uh, orbital transfer vehicle. Um, they're calling it Reliant. And the reason this is like notable is because they say that they want to do um, debris cleanup. But if you actually 
read uh, their uh, their press release. It's it's way down the line. So basically, they're they're going to be doing um, Reliant Standard and then Reliant Pro. The standard configuration um, will be capable of lifting a vehicle's orbit from you know the 250 300 kilometer range up to around 550 500 kilometers. Um, and the idea is that they I, I believe what they're planning on doing is putting uh, multiple payloads on a Reliant upper stage, putting the Reliant upper stage in another multiple launch stack. Um, and then once they get to orbit, they can, you know, the, the parent uh, upper stage will deploy all of its different payloads into either the same orbit or into a couple of orbits that are nearby. And then Reliant can take its high requirement payloads and put them in a totally different orbit. And so the, the standard will be able to do, you know, a small amount of change. And then their pro version um, will also have enough power to do inclination changes. And the pro version is where the debris cleanup capability comes into play. And th this is actually a really cool idea. Um, if, if every single vehicle that we launched could take out one piece of debris before it deorbited, that would be a big mm -hmm. deal. And, and so that's what they're, uh, what they're trying to do. They, are going to have modular payloads that can that can be attached to pro not standard um, and then these payloads will be able to grapple or net or you know somehow uh, collect debris and then they can uh, deorbit the whole thing altogether um, their chief operating officer alexander Kabanovsky, yeah, I think I did that right. Mm -hmm. uh, said uh, the goal is to bring down as much as we put up. At great, I am all for it. That sounds fantastic. Um, it's just mm -hmm. a little bit of a bummer that this is so far in the future. When you know, kind of a clickbaity title uh, makes you think it's a, it's a little more uh, close to reality than it actually is. So. Um, yeah, keep an eye on ExoLaunch. Uh, hopefully they'll let us know more about their modular payload debris collection techniques in the future. That'd be pretty cool. I mean, that's such a good idea. Like, in fact, just like as a standard practice, if every like satellite that you put up has to have the, or you like you have to include the ability to bring something else back down, then that would, you know, that would be pretty cool. You know, mm -hmm. like you could maintain a kind of a nice homeostasis there and yeah, keep, finally and keep start, things clean. Finally start bending the curve. Yeah. Right. The fact though that we've got a lot of debris already on orbit makes me think of this in a in a different way. Um, my mom always said uh, if you're going from one room to another and your hands are empty, something's wrong. Like if you're going from one room mm -hmm. to another, just grab something that belongs in that other room. Even if you don't have time to put it away, just get it closer to where it's supposed to be. And that's, that's kind of what the idea could be here. If, you know, if mm -hmm. every vehicle that went up, that was going to deorbit itself could take something else out with it. You know, that's, it's going to be getting us yeah. closer. Good idea. So translating on over to our second topic, ACEs. So that's been scrapped, but apparently it will be living on in the form of a Centaur 5. So just because ACEs is a little bit of a ambiguous term, this is ULA's Advanced Cryogenic Evolved Stage. It's weird that the word upper is not in there. Uh, uh, so did you guys know that ACEs was officially canceled in September? I did not know this. I, I didn't know either. Nope. They announced it at a conference or something, and... Like I knew that they weren't going with aces as like a primary upper stage for Vulcan, but I didn't realize that like the thing was totally gone. Uh, yeah, Chris in the chat uh, is tearing his hair out and says, I wanted to see the V8 engine in space helping prevent boil off, well, prevent uh, to utilize boil off, I guess. Uh, 
But yeah, like seriously, a lawnmower engine in space that runs off of your your boiled off cryogenics to power your vehicle <laughs> is such a cool idea. And so um, Centaur 5 is not doing integrated fluids, so that's not going to be a thing. And it's, it's a little depressing. Although, uh, to be fair, Centaur 5 does pick up the ability to do on-orbit refueling, so which is not something that ACES was going to be able to do. So like you said, David, uh, it kind of is going to be living on in Centaur 5. Uh, Tori Bruno said that it's got its fingerprints in there, which is kind of cool. Um, and this week, uh, he, he, I think this was on a, on a teleconference. He talked about this, but then he put out some more information on Twitter. There's a nice uh, infographic. So he made comparisons to the current uh, Centaur 3, a.k.a. Uh, Common Centaur. This, this is going to be pretty cool. Um, so he's saying that they're expecting uh, on the teleconference, like the, f the first little bit of, of information we really got was it's going to have 40% more on orbit lifetime than Centaur three. Um, and the plan is to push that, uh, operable range by 450 to 600 times its current planned on orbit lifetime. Uh, in the next handful of years, whatever that uh, well, winds up meaning. I think you mean like f by 400 to 500%, right? Like not times, because that would be... He said times. Because that seems pretty... Well, I guess if a stage initially is only going up and coming right back down, then yeah, that's an, that's an achievable goal. But I, th I thought he meant by like... Yeah. Okay, well, so right. let's let's do a little bit of math. Um, it's it's base uh, on orbit lifetime is going to be twelve hours, and um, they're going to be able to add what they're calling a mission extension kit, and they're hoping for multi month uh, on orbit lifetime. So if twelve hours is half of a day, and a, you know multi months, that's potentially ninety days, right? So that's what a hundred and eighty uh half days so 12 to 180 that that's um, yep that's a lot and then that's not the only performance uh outpacing <laughs> that uh, that poor centaur 3 is getting uh centaur 5 is also uh expected to have 50% more delta v uh than centaur 3 um and the the major thing here is the diameter increase is going to be fueling that, but also there is a, uh, um, an impulse, uh, increase. So I, I think it's worth pointing out that Delta or that's uh, Centaur three has two different versions, right? SEC and DEC, uh, single engine Centaur and dual engine Centaur. Um, although to be fair, DEC has, I don't think they've ever flown DEC, have they? Um, I know that they were primarily wanting to use it on uh, Dream Chaser missions. Uh, Colin in the chat says DEC is the, is the crew rated version. That's, that's good. Okay. That's a good way to remember that. And so before we like really get into uh, Centaur 5 a little more, um, I want to remind everybody how cool the aft bulkhead carrier on Centaur 3 is. That's the payload capacity down next to the engines that they have. It's really cool that they were able to do that. So normally there are three spherical um, helium tanks on the bottom of the stage surrounding the engine. And to uh, be able to put cargo down there, they switched from three uh, spheres to two cylinders. Um, and so the, uh, the two uh, CubeSats that went to Mars, uh, Marco, right? Marco A and B? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, they were definitely um, Marco. 
Yeah, they they flew down there in the in the uh, the AF bulkhead carrier, and I, I'm gonna assume that Centaur Five will also be able to do that. But I, I don't know. They may be saving that space for the um, multi-month mission extension kit or something. I don't, I don't know. But I just I gotta give Centaur Three its due because we're really gonna beat up on it here uh, in terms of uh, performance improvements. But Centaur Three is really cool. Um, you have to love mm. Centaur. Okay, so uh, Centaur 5 is going to have two RL-10C-X engines. And it's been a long time since they selected uh, the RL-10C-X. as RL-10C-X. Um, the other option was a Blue Origin engine. Would it be the, B- the BE-4, I think is what was going to fly. And so, yeah, they're going to do two RL-10s. Oh, uh, BE-3U. Okay. BE-3, yeah, because it's a Hydrolox engine. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, so they went with Rocket Dyne over Blue Origin and um, for for the upper stage. It, it will, by default, come with two of these engines, um, unlike... Uh, Centaur 3, which only uses two engines for the crew rated. Thank you, Colin. Yeah, there, there are some really big upgrades uh, to fuel those engines. So first, obviously, it's going to, well, it, it's going to have a, a bigger diameter, which makes sense because it's flying on Vulcan, which is uh, a, a big rocket. Um, but just to compare it to Centaur 3, uh, it's got a 5.4 meter diameter compared to the 3's 3.1 meter diameter. Um, I think we can begin to see why they skipped the four. Uh, Centaur three is three meter. Centaur five is 5.4 meter. And it's going to be the same height. I was 12. thinking that. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> so I appreciate that. That's five ish. Yeah. It's, it's a guess. I don't, I don't know if they've actually the said it, but five it's five meter class right. diameter. Yeah. Yeah. Stage. I mean, you you call it like a five meter fairing, right? So I think it's I think it's fair. Um, it's going to be twelve point six meters in length, uh, the, the same length, um, and so that that gives you a lot of extra propellant, right? Um, but the propellant actually is not the only thing that we're adding more of. We're also adding less structure. Jeez, that was <laughs> that was really bad. So um, they are cutting the thickness of the skin uh, by like thirty percent or something. Um, they're switching to three hundred series uh, stainless uh, for the skin, uh, so I get to to run with a, a thinner skin, uh, which also improves uh, performance. So that skin is what two thirds the thickness of a dime. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's mm-hmm. impressive. That always amazes me that you know you can get something that thin that's that big with cryogenics, no less. So now, does this mean? Because I'm just you know I'm not a metallurgy type of a person, but yeah, uh, does this mean that this thing has to always remain pressurized, or would it just crumple otherwise? You can have thin ones that are still structurally supported. I mean, well, I suppose in yeah, zero g, but implode. Well, it's no, no, even yeah, even zero g isn't the problem. It's under thrust that's the problem, right? Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a big cylinder. Like it, it doesn't get much more rigid than that. Although I get, I say that with, uh, cylindrical rockets having buckled with, uh, uh, with, uh, balloon tanks before. So 
But, you know, keeping it pressurized isn't isn't that big of a deal because, you know, they're already going to be venting the boil off, the boiled off propellant. So I, I think it'll be OK. Mm-hmm. Sam in the chat is saying that Centaur previously had to be either pressurized or intention in this thing, you know, mm-hmm. like Ben was saying, is even thinner. So, yeah, it sounds like you're on to something. So, like I said before, they are no longer, well, no longer, they're the uh the integrated fluids approach didn't make it from aces to centaur 5 but they are at least dropping the hydrazine for the rcs system they're switching to hydrogen peroxide and i don't know how how that's going to affect things i mean hydrogen peroxide is is less has less energy per unit mass in it i'm assuming like hydrazine is pretty powerful i'm trying to remember how how does hydrogen peroxide combustion work does it it doesn't need any more oxygen right because it you take two hydrogen peroxides and you crack them apart and you get a water and an oxygen so but it's not a it's not a monopropellant you don't you do you still need to mix it with something else well i guess if you push it through a catalyst bed yeah well yeah that and that would that would really that would really make sense monoprop or as an oxidizer i see but yeah the the benefits of not having hydrazine on your vehicle are huge even if the performance drops uh it's not going to drop enough to to not make that a a very nice uh a a nice trade-off i guess and it's a lot cheaper too i didn't realize hydrazine basically sits above kind of like all the other kind of propellants in terms of cost. And I bet you some of that is just due to the handling requirements. I could believe that. Yeah. Because <laughs> these, yeah, the other ones are not nearly as toxic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so funny because like HTP will ruin your morning, but <laughs> at, at least if it splashes on the ground, it's, you know, <laughs> not an environmental well, hazard. I, I actually looked in a book to get these numbers. So it's about $400 per kilogram for hydrazine. And five dollars and fifty cents per kilogram. Wow, hydrogen mm. peroxide. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Apparently, when it comes to propellants, like when you're you're trying to determine the cost of your vehicle, you can just basically ignore the propellants unless <laughs> you're right. going to be dealing with <laughs> you know uh, hydrazine and uh, like NTO or something like that. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, Vulcan Centaur is still on uh, on target for its maiden launch later this year. Uh, late this year i think it's like october november something like that um who knows like Mm. you know 2020 and 2021 have been bad years for schedules of all types but uh, i i think we're all hoping that it's not going to slip and that we'll get to see uh vulcan go do its thing it's more exciting than like a a new car you know like a luxury car release like because ula is the luxury Mm -hmm. auto manufacturer right like they're the bmw they build these solid cars uh or these solid rockets that are super reliable and super expensive i I mean like maybe super expensive is a little um it's it's not very generous but you know like they're it's there's they're expensive launches but when you use top top of the line yeah exactly like you get what you pay for and and you know they put out really beautiful rockets in a lovely sort of retro way i like that you refer to them as they're really solid rockets but of course they're not solid (laughs) 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 but (laughs) oh so colin in chat says uh i think htp also has a shelf life on orbit which means that soyuz can't stay docked indefinitely uh because yeah you're your fuel starts turning into water. And so it'll be really interesting if they have multi, you know, multiple months on orbit planned for Centaur 5. It'll be really interesting to see how hydrazine plays into that. But 
I, I or not hydrazine, <laughs> uh, HTP, uh, hydrogen peroxide. I, I have a feeling that uh, the decomposition of HTP is going to be less of an issue than uh, than cryogenic storing cryogenics on orbit for that long but who knows we'll we'll have to see yeah i remember uh that's really cool that colin brought that up because remember when i guess what was it maybe two years ago when we had that issue with uh scheduling um crew to the iss and there was like you know can we keep people on orbit long enough to make sure that we keep the continuous human presence going on and that was the limiting factor i remember now was that the 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 dock life as he puts it uh, of the Soyuz you know could only go so far before yeah HTP mm. starts some degree Tur turning into water all right let's do three short and sweets what's the first one Dennis first up Moxie operates for the first time on Mars NASA's Perseverance rover accomplished another first on Mars when its Moxie instrument generated oxygen from the red planet's CO2 dominated atmosphere. While the rover is parked at Van Zyl's Overlook to keep an eye on the Ingenuity helicopter, the toaster-sized ISRU tech demonstrator MOXIE operated for two hours to produce 5.4 grams of oxygen, enough for an astronaut to breathe for 10 minutes. The instrument's team plans to run a power-hungry experiment about nine more times over the next Martian year, varying the season and time of day when it operates in order to collect as much useful data as possible. Next, Ingenuity Flight 2. The Mars helicopter took to the red skies a second time on the 22nd. It set a new altitude record of 5 meters, translated to a point 0.2 meters east and back at a speed of half a meter per second, and performed three 90-degree rotations. The flight lasted 51.9 seconds and returned the helicopter's first in-flight color image. The third flight is planned to take place between the recording of this show and publication. If everything goes to plan, Ingenuity will have completed a third flight, featuring a 50-meter translation north, a maximum speed of 2 meters per second, and 80 seconds floating on Mars's tenuous breezes. And then next up, OneWeb and Starlink cross paths. OneWeb officials have reported that during an orbital raising maneuver of one of its satellites, it had a near miss with a Starlink satellite. However, more recent analysis has determined that the possibility of a conjunction was actually very low and within acceptable safety margins. Initial projections put the two satellites within 60 meters of each other with a 1.3% chance of a collision. OneWeb claims SpaceX turned off its satellite's automated collision avoidance system because there was nothing it could do to avoid the collision. And SpaceX claims that it was asked to do so by OneWeb while they performed the avoidance maneuver. The actual closest approach was determined to be 1,120 meters, so actually not that close after all. Yeah, so there were some words, I guess, between the two companies, and now then, like, I think the FCC got involved, and there was like a... This just feels like the first of many of such instances where <laughs> they're going to have some disputes with other satellite operators. Yeah, yeah, the Starlink and Aeolus, right? I don't remember Aeolus. what it was. I guess, yeah. That was... Yeah, that was like a European um, Earth observation satellite. Okay, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, yeah, this week, no winners, but that's, uh, I don't think that's our fault this time. <laughs> um, we yeah. got the right date and time and all that. Uh, the clue was, if a spacecraft takes data but can't transmit it back to Earth, does it make a science? So, yeah, does it make a science? Which I think yeah. is a great clue. And Dennis, you're going to have to explain that one to us and I guess to everyone else because uh, nobody seemed to pick up on what that was in reference to yeah, thanks yeah, i might have gotten a little too obscure and vague with that one but um what uh the event for this week uh in spaceflight history is the first of may 1999 and it's the failure of the abrixus 
uh, X-ray telescope. We've had a string of failures this year <laughs> uh, in terms of, you know, rockets and telescopes and spacecraft. And so it's just kind of continuing this, <laughs> this, uh, this mood uh, on the show. <laughs> yep. But um, yeah, so, so this was um, uh, 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 an X-ray telescope that was launched on April 28th. Um, it was launched on a, a Cosmos 3M, which is a, a two-stage, uh, all hypergolic um, uh, Russian and earlier, you know, Soviet uh, you know, launch vehicle, and uh, you know it, it it launched out of the Kasputin Yar, which is you know a uh, one of the I guess lesser known cosmodromes in um in Russia and beyond and the Soviet Union. Um, I don't think I've ever one. even heard of it. Yeah, so this this was a big one where it was it was like you know early days of the Cold War for a lot of like missile tests, and so you do sounding rockets, but you can also do orbital launches from there. And so, but yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it either. Um, so. I, Looked it up a little bit to get a little more info on there. This uh, this telescope was put in a uh, you know a, a pretty pretty high orbit, you know 550 by 600 kilometers, depending on whether you think that's high or not. <laughs> but uh, at an inclination of 48 degrees, and um, it was launched alongside with a, uh, a communications microsat uh, called Megsat uh, Zero. It had a little uh, semi ride share, or at least you know there were just the two payloads on board. As I mentioned, right? So it, it was not just an X-ray telescope, but it was an X-ray survey telescope. Okay, and so that's what this Abrixas stands for. Is it's, it's all caps A B R I X A S, which is a broadband imaging X-ray all sky survey. So uh, semi-tortured. Acronym, yeah, they I guess. used um, they used but, yeah. they used an indefinite article as one of the letters in their acronym. Right. <laughs> well, I'm okay with right. that, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's, it's because, yeah, because you think about it, right? Anytime I say, like, you know, failure of the Abrixis, I'm saying failure of the A broadband imaging <laughs> X-ray. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's where it gets a little clunky. <laughs> yeah. Well, then why didn't they just call it Brixis? Because that sounds cool too. Right. I mean, I, I don't think Abrixis is a word. So, yeah, you don't necessarily need that A in there. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. It doesn't mean anything, so go with Brixis. <laughs> uh, alas, uh, and so this this was a German uh, telescope, uh, by the way. Uh, DLR um, uh, was you know the, the main mission managers there. But the, uh, the so the upshot with this, right? So what you know, there's you know different classes of X-ray telescopes, and so this was going to be one that was intended to um, be you know it's got you know in its name uh, uh, an all sky survey, right? And so you don't go you know super deep and super focused. You kind of do a shallower survey, but you cover the whole sky. Uh, Rosat, which is one of the kind of big uh, original um, X-ray uh, uh, orbiting observatories, basically covered uh, uh, 0.1 to 2 keV energies. Uh, Abrixis's goal was to basically do uh, an all sky survey and kind of complementary to Rosat and actually kind of superseding Rosat would be to go to higher energies. Uh, uh, from half a keV all the way out to uh, 10 or 12 or 15 keV, depending on uh, which source I look at. There's a little bit of vagueness there into where the uh, upper end uh, cutoff is there, right? And so, of course, uh, you know, they say it all the time, but keV, right, that's a kiloelectron volt, just a measure of energy. And in particular, uh, you know, the science case was, uh, you know, to identify absorbed AGN or active galactic nuclei, but it was also going to pick up a ton of different, you know, things that are emitting in the x-rays uh, in the sky. And it was going to be complementary to, uh, right, this is 1999. So uh, Chandra, which, uh, you know, had only recently been named Chandra. Uh, it was the uh, AXAF, uh, Advanced X-ray Astrophysics Facility before then. And uh, XMM Newton, which was only just named, you know, Newton. Uh, it was just XMM before then. It was meant to be complementary to these 
larger and more focused deep uh, X-ray uh, observatories. But there were some cool things about its design. It had, uh, you know, being an X-ray telescope, right? You can't reflect X-rays, right? They're too high energy. And so you kind of just nudge and guide them using kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, nested mirrors. And so Abrixis was actually seven of these Walter type telescopes with 27 nested mirrors apiece to kind of guide the X-rays coming in the entrance aperture and then sending them back to the focal plane where a big uh one of the big ways that this uh you know abrixis was a uh, superior to rosat or you know uh, an improvement over rosat was that rosat uh did not have a ccd in there it just had basically a little gas chamber it was called a proportional counter and so when x-rays would pass through that gas they create little electron clouds and you'd be able to pick up the voltage that way and so that's how a lot of you know earlier x-ray you know imaging and x-ray detections were done uh, on sounding rockets and uh, satellites. But now you kind of finally had the early days of X-ray CCDs, where, right, charge couple device where you can actually have your pixels properly sitting there. And, you know, when they hit, when X-ray hits them, then you see that charge build up and you can take a longer exposure and let more and more charge build up. And so you can go, uh, you know, much deeper than you could, uh, much more sensitive than you could with just uh, proportion counters. And so um, you've got these seven, uh, you know, telescopes aligned, as you can imagine, right? you got the one in the middle and the six around them and kind of a little hexa hexagon pattern, right? The best way you can kind of pack them in there. And they uh, were a little over seven degrees uh, inclined. So what's cool is that the light paths uh, all crisscrossed before they hit the focal plane. So they were all kind of converging um, uh, back, uh, uh, you know, at the far end of the telescope, which is where you would put your CCD to actually do your, your imaging. It was very sensitive. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, in, in earlier shows about how sensitive like Chandra is, but even this, uh, you know, Abrixis, which wasn't intended to be, you know, uh, one of these kind of uh, super uh, high resolution uh, x-ray observatories, it still was able to basically get a very secure detection with as few as 15 photons. Hmm. And so that's kind of the, the, the joke in x-ray astronomy is that like you could even name the photons in your detection, you know, <laughs> give them little personalities and everything. <laughs> that's how few there are. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so, right, this was a, a spin stabilized uh, 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 telescope that was sent up there. Kind of everything, you know, about it is sort of, you know, kind of standard, you know, uh, issues. But there was uh, an issue related to the batteries. And that's kind of where the failure comes in as well as the clue and everything uh, about the anomaly, right? These, uh, you know, in the late 90s were also the smaller, cheaper, faster days, right? And so um, that was an idea to be able to put more things on orbit, get more things out in the space. And while you might have more failure rates, the idea was that overall, the cost-benefit analysis was that, well, those failures are still worth it because you're not spending as much money per uh, instrument or per observatory or per spacecraft. Uh, Brixis was only a $20 or $20 million mission, right? Which is, you know, pretty darn good for doing a, you know, basically improving an all-sky X-ray map uh, significantly over ROSAT. And so, um, uh, but here was where the issue happened, right? So, so it launched on April 28th. And uh, three days later, on the 1st of May, so it's got these uh, 11 batteries on board, and it's unclear, uh, actually, uh, I'd seen different sources talk about 11 batteries versus two batteries, so I'm assuming that one of them was a battery bank. Yeah, it's probably cells, a cell count versus a battery count, right? Right. I think that's a good idea, because the 11 batteries came from a Nature uh, editorial, and so this was kind of something more written for, you know, a general scientific uh, audience or a typo as sam in the chat points out is always a possibility <laughs> That's a possibility <laughs> right? too. Uh, nature yeah nature can be fallible for sure especially in editorials 
Uh, evidently, though, at least one of those batteries, uh, the way it was phrased, uh, received inappropriate power input from other batteries that were used to support the launch, which ultimately overcharged it and basically had it burn out or explode, depending on how you want to think about it. And so <laughs> trying to dig into a little more details, because there wasn't like a big, you know, uh, at least uh, in the English, uh, the English uh, speaking uh, sphere of documents and mm-hmm. things like that, I wasn't able to find, you know, a, a, a deep uh, investigation board or anything like that. And so maybe DLR did do one and that's, I was unable to find it because, you know, maybe it's in German, but the, uh, the upshot is that, or what I was able to try to piece together using some detective work <laughs> was that, so the spacecraft's power supply is combined with the thermal control electronics. And it's pretty complicated because the telescope uh, telescopes need to stay, uh, much warmer than the CCDs, right? The CCDs, you, you always want to cool basically, whether you're doing x-ray, optical, infrared, whatever, because the, the cooler they are, the less, you know, thermal fluctuations are going to cause electrons to basically jump, you know, and end up getting counted as, you know, uh, charge, right? And instead you want the only electrons that jump and get counted as charged to be ones that are excited by incoming light. Because of this differential, you had this uh, somewhat complicated integrated system going here. And that unit was directly connected to the solar generators. So, right, this is a, you know, a more cylindrical, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, telescope. Um, it's It was, uh, you know, uh, for to give you a sense for size, it's about 600 millimeters or, you know, 0.6 meters uh, in diameter, uh, at least. And so um, not terribly big, but... You know, it had the solar uh, generator slash panel sitting, you know, uh, attached to the one side of it, essentially. And uh, that would give you a good 200 watts of power. And so and so this whole uh, this unit is also connected to, you know, it's connected to the solar generator. So it can get 200 watts of power from that. But it's also connected to a uh, nickel uh, hydride battery. So it sounds like um, it had um, an 11 battery string. So uh, an 11 cell single battery and the two batteries uh, that that's the main battery where you saw two batteries is counting the main battery and the um, the starter battery, which was a not chargeable single use battery. And so it sounds like, yes, um, it sounds like the main battery was was destroyed three hours after launch. Um, and it could have been either a short or an overvoltage, but I don't know how an overvoltage on the ground would have resulted in this three hours later. But yeah, either either pre-launch damage or a short inside the vehicle. And and I want to say thanks to uh, Sam in the chat for pointing out that it wasn't a nickel hydride, uh, the batteries, but rather that it was uh, nickel with a hydrogen gas uh, type of battery. And so um, that were pretty much exclusively used on spacecraft and pretty obscure. So uh, thank you. I, I'd learned something new. I, I would I would contest pretty obscure because ISS up until the big battery replacement campaign used uh, those ga- hydrogen gas batteries. They're, they're really cool. They, the pressure goes up and down as the, ch- as the charge goes up and down. <laughs> so it's a weird type of battery but yeah yes it's definitely a space thing yeah they have a pretty good looking uh wikipedia entry not too long but with a lot of diagrams and such and so i'm gonna go and look at it afterwards <laughs> after the show yeah and so the upshot is that right whether you know there was a short or something that had happened um essentially uh one of the batteries uh was basically toast and um you know uh some of the investigations i mean they basically 
identified it as a design fault of the battery system, uh, which was designed by a Bremen-based company, uh, OHB, which has basically dabbled in a lot of different things, uh, you know, space-related as well as uh, even on some terrestrial um, astronomy-type uh, uh, projects. And so uh, the upshot, though, is that the scientific instruments seem to be working, but the data couldn't be uh, relayed to Earth. That is where the origin of this clue comes from, right? Uh, if a spacecraft takes data but can't transmit it back to Earth, does it make a science? You know, once once they like realized, you know, they were you know no longer getting telemetry from the spacecraft, they try to work around to get uh, contact during the full illumination. Um, but uh, you know, a few days later, but uh, that was uh, that failed. They were never able to kind of restore contact with it. That was the end of that. And so, uh, yeah. fortunately, Abrixis uh, just kind of you know orbited uh, uselessly until uh, October 31st of 2017, so, you know, eight years-ish later when it uh, finally re-entered the atmosphere. It kind of hurts more that they were able to collect data and just couldn't relay it back to Earth. Right? Isn't that, yeah. That's kind of <laughs> that's, that's really worse. And, and the design was, you know, this is supposed to be just, you know, three-year mission, you know, just do the sky and then you're done. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, weren't able to get anything really from it. But, um... Yeah, this triggered a lot of, uh, you know, debate, you know, at least in the press about this sort of, again, that like smaller, cheaper, faster uh, approach, because this was only a few weeks ago, right at the beginning of March, when we also we've been tracking 1999 this year with our This Week in Spaceflight Histories, because in episode 299, mm -hmm. um, I forget, was it... Uh, and oh, it was Ben. Yeah, because I remember you talked about how ultimately it, it failed, but using, um, I guess, what, like a finder scope on there, they still were able to do some science. That's right. Uh, yeah, the Star Tracker. They were able to pull that off. Yeah, yeah the Star Tracker. Right. And so um, Abrixis, though, I mean, it was a, it, it was going to be a great telescope. And so it still lives on um, through E-Rosita. And so uh, the E-Rosita uh, telescope, uh, telescope um, it was launched in July 2019. It was based on Abrixis's design. So it's got the seven, you know, nested, uh, you know, Walter telescopes all kind of, you know, working together. And uh, it's it, it was, yeah, launched in July 2019 as the primary instrument for the Spectre RG Space Observatory. And so this is a, you know, um, uh, uh, in addition to Erosita, the X-ray telescope, it also has a second uh, telescope on there that I believe the Russians had designed and built. And so, you know, that's going to, you know, be doing some good stuff, uh, some more uh, all-sky surveying. And uh, it has uh, yet another, like, two decades worth of, you know, uh, you know, uh, technology behind it, even though, you know, it was based on the uh, um, uh, Abrixis. And so, you know, it has higher power consumption, uh, better resolution, but uh, otherwise it's, you know, it's basically going to you know, keep doing this. Uh, the the uh, X-ray observatory or the X-ray survey of the sky that Abrixis was going for uh, ultimately will be accomplished. It just took another 21 years for that. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, for it to start, really, I should say. And so in any event, that is your... Uh, uh, event for this week in space flight. I realized maybe uh, I could have, you know, gone more with the X-rays or battery failure rather than the, uh, the 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 data transmission. But um, yeah, I was getting a little too excited about making a silly play <laughs> yeah. on that famous yeah. philosophical <laughs> statement about a tree falling in the forest. <laughs> Great, thank you, Dennis. Um, so next week is the fourth through the tenth of May. And David, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And also, next week in 1999, since we are tracking that year, <laughs> the clue. Well, actually, first let let me give a meta clue because I think it <laughs> needs it, and I do want some winners. So the the meta clue is that the clue 
uh, might incorporate a pun. So bear that in mind. And the clue is, in hindsight, it didn't seem like it would work. And there's your clue. Okay. Well, if you understand the pun, or you can skip the pun and go straight to the event, um, <laughs> go ahead and guess, uh, post a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck. Now we can move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got six different events, so we got quite the list today, and we're going to begin with a Starlink. All right. You know them. You love them. Uh, you can't see the stars for them. It's Starlink 24 launching on top of a Falcon 9 Block 5 out of Cape Canaveral uh, on Wednesday the 28th at 0405 UTC. And also on uh, Wednesday, April 28th, we have uh, Crew-1 uh, leaving the International Space Station and coming home. And so at 4.45 a.m., coverage of the hatch closure of uh, Resilience um, prior to the Crew-1 undocking is going to take place. And then at 6.45 a.m., coverage of the undocking itself of Resilience from the Harmony Zenith port on the ISS uh, and splashdown um, will begin. And the undocking itself is scheduled at 7.05 a.m. Eastern Time, with the splashdown scheduled at 12.40 p.m. Eastern Time. And then after that, on the 27th slash 28th, I guess depending on where you are, uh, is the launch of a Vega, and that is with Pleiades Neo 3, which I think we covered this, mm -hmm. was that last week? Last did, week did we talk yeah. about last week? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so we already talked oh. about this one last week. It got uh, delayed. Um, and what was the reason? I know. No we clue. <laughs> I was did a little bit yeah, didn't find it quick enough and got bored. So we don't know why it got delayed, but it was delayed. So now, yeah, rescheduled for the 27th or 28th. And the launch time would be at 0150 UTC. And that is going to be uh, 9.50 p.m. on the East Coast of the United States. So you can, um, you know, tune in and watch that. It won't be too hard to see. And that's launching from uh, ZLV Kourou French Guiana. Uh, ZLV is where they uh, launch Vegas from, so that's, I guess, specifically where that pad would be. So Pleiades Neo 3 is a high-resolution Earth observation satellite built and owned and operated by Airbus. So there you go. So yeah, check that one out. It'll be kind of in the evening on the East Coast. You can totally watch that. So next up, we're not 100% sure about this uh, about this time, but it sounds like a, there have been a couple of different sources confirming this time. This is a Long March 5B uh, launching Tianhe One. So, um, this is the first launch for the, for the new Chinese space station. Um, we were talking about when Tiangong Two was deorbited. Uh, what was the name of the game? Uh, Splashdown Bingo is what we played. And, um, <laughs> so I was just kind of thinking about how cool it is that we're, uh, getting another Chinese space station up and running. So this is the first, uh, module and there are going to be, um, a number of additional, uh, launches, but this is like the, the core module. And it, that is rumored to be flying on Thursday, the 29th at 0318 UTC. It's, it's going to be cool to have uh, more people in space. And uh, also on uh, April 29th, uh, Parker Solar Probe, which had a Venus flyby back in February, will uh, reach its eighth perihelion. And so after that flyby, right, that means it's nudging ever closer to the sun, where uh, nudging means it's going to be 2.1 million kilometers closer than its last uh, mm. previous, its previous two perihelia. And so it'll be uh, coming by 11.1 uh, million kilometers of the sun. So 
uh, getting closer and closer. It still has another couple of years until it gets to its uh, its ultimately uh, its closest perihelia that are scheduled. Right, and then after all of that, on the thirtieth or May first, again depending on your time zone, is hopefully uh, the ten kilometer flight of Starship uh, number fifteen. So here's hoping that all goes well um, and that it actually launches. I'm not concerned about the launch. That's not what I'm worried about. Landing. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping that all lands well, right? That it all goes up and comes back down in one piece. So the launch window, nice and long. So from 1700 UTC through 0100 UTC. So there you go. And that'll be obviously around like, what, three o'clock in the afternoon on the East Coast. If you're in the United States, I know I kind of yeah. always go back to that. I'm a East Coast biased. It's the least amount of math you have to do. You're working with slightly smaller numbers <laughs> converting from UTC. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So with that, time to do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and a Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make our insurance on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit the Orbital Mechanics dot com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as shoutouts and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links or orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you